welcome to the Bro Nova Podcast, the podcast that models healthy communication for men, empowering them to start the journey of self-work. Now here's your host, Thomas Pierce. Okay, and we're recording. Hey, Shannon, good evening. Welcome to the Bro Nova Podcast. Hey, Thomas, how are you doing? Great. Yeah, I'm stoked. Uh, I'm excited to be talking with you. First time meeting, but you seem like you have a great energy and um, you work in mental health, which is always really interesting to kind of dig into. So yeah, by way of introduction, what would you you know like to share uh, with your, about yourself with the audience? Well, I've been a therapist for a million years and uh, <laughs> <about> <laughs> feels that way sometimes. About four years ago, I felt like there were just millions of people in the world that didn't have any access to mental health information, strategies. And um, I thought sharing one hour, one person at a time was kind of stingy. And I wanted Mm -hmm. to share with more people, but I wasn't really into writing a book yet. And everybody was listening to YouTube and watching YouTube. So I started a YouTube channel and intended to keep it really broad, but then it really focused in on relationships and people wanted, especially to understand narcissistic abuse and toxic relationships. So over the past two or three years, that's been almost my sole focus because that's the constant uh, question that people have on their minds. So focused on that. And then uh, about a year ago, realized that I actually do need to write a book because the people that were asking all these questions really needed more help. So I wrote a book called Out of the Fog into the Clear Journaling to Help You Heal from Toxic Relationships. And it's really pulling together all the information, perspectives, and strategies that I've been talking about for the past four years. Amazing. So what are, or I guess how common do you think a narcissistic partner is or how many people if you were to put a percentage on it do you think are that person maybe without even knowing it (laughs) (laughs) you know it's really weird because you know abusive and bad behavior has been around forever but the term narcissism hasn't really been attached to it for that long and it seems like it's only been the last I don't know five or ten years that people have really been focused on it and it's getting more and more common that people are talking about that um, I don't know that actual narcissistic personality disorder is probably not that common, um, but the narcissistic traits seem like they are more and more common in our world right now. And I think it's because we tend to have a lot of superficiality. People tend to not focus on being themselves in terms of their character qualities and their morals and values, but more, you know, how do they look and how are they how many followers do they have? And, and just all these really superficial things. Um, and that creates more of a superficial focus. And I think then they have a really hard time in relationships. Totally. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I'm of the generation where I was on the cusp of kind of not growing up with social media. So I was probably Hmm. the last, you know, I'm under 30 still. So like, Eighth grade, ninth grade was kind of when I got a phone and it wasn't quite a smartphone. But then even, you know, we had Facebook even at that point, which is all, you know, the classic like, 
oh, I made a post. How many likes did it get? I put up a new photo. Yeah. How many like, you know, <laughs> and all that stuff. And then you get the dopamine, the hit, the reward. So our brains are being trained to this is a good thing. And then, so it makes sense that it kind of complicates intimate relationships that are, okay, like we're past, you know, the superficial level of, you know, like juvenile, like immediate attraction. And then how do I actually get real with someone when my whole self-worth is built up around this abstract online funhouse mirror. (laughs) (laughs) That's, That's perfectly put. Yeah, it is. It's a very confusing world to try to have a relationship in. And so people do get really lost. I think early in adolescence, am I just my, um, my social media persona, there's even a thing called um, Snapchat dysphoric disorder or something like that, because people oh, wow. have have um, uh, altered their actual photos so much that they look in the mirror and they're kind of freaked out because they don't think that's them. That's oh, wow. kind of a sad, awful thing. But you know, <laughs> if, you, if you're constantly putting out there something that's totally tweaked and and altered you don't even know what you look like and then you don't even want people to actually see the real you and i think Mm -hmm. on a deeper level you don't want the people to see the real you emotionally spiritually and um all of that so i used to you know i used to kind of think about like being awakened or being conscious you know as a kind of a um a dual, a duality, either someone is or they are not. But I think as I get older, I am recognizing that some parts of us can be really conscious or self-aware and other parts of us can be completely oblivious. So (laughs) yeah, I kind of with, I guess what I'm saying is that like, for me, maybe it's easy to judge people who are so oblivious and and, and not self-aware. But then as I, get to know myself better, I find more blind spots, et cetera. Um, Mm. So as a therapist, do you ever have those moments where you're like, wow, this person is is absolutely brutal. (laughs) I don't like them at all. And how do you kind of of (laughs) still do your job if you don't like the person? (laughs) That's a really interesting question. I'm going to out myself. (laughs) <laughs> you know, I think sometimes it is challenging. And typically what's interesting, you know, and, and when people quote to kind of circle back and include your last question, when people say 6% of the population is a narcissistic person or whatever, I think that's so ridiculous because there's really honestly no way to know. Because people who have narcissistic traits or personality they simply don't think that they're in the wrong and they never come to therapy. So how would you ever count them? They don't go to the (laughs) hospital. They don't go to the therapist. There's nothing wrong with them. It's everybody else's problem. And so how in the world would you ever count that? The only way we can count how many people are depressed is because they show up for treatment, right? And so they're either showing up at a hospital or they're showing up and you know, insurance is paying for them to go to therapy. And that's how we can count those folks. But you can't count a narcissist because they don't show up. The only time they show up is with a partner. And so I've had them, um, you know, sometimes show up in my office with a partner. And that can be really challenging. And but the thing is, is that as soon as you challenge them, 
they usually bolt and they usually say, well, she doesn't know anything and we're not going back to that one. <laughs> so it's a, it's a tricky thing to try to help them. And, uh, but once in a blue moon, you'll get somebody who kind of has some mildly to moderately narcissistic traits, but they actually want to make changes because it's messing up their lives and they know that they're screwing up relationships and maybe they actually care about somebody and want to make it work. And so sometimes those folks will show up, but I, I, I genuinely have never had anybody come and really do the work that I just couldn't stand because right, right. if they show up and they keep showing up, you know, you find endearing qualities about them. Right. So um, <laughs> sometimes there are what we call transference and countertransference, and that can be challenging where their stuff kind of triggers my stuff. And then we have this like thing and that can be really interesting oh, and challenging. Spicy. Yeah, it can get spicy, but um, <laughs> you know, back way back in grad school, my professor would say the conscious use of self, that's what you have to learn is how to consciously use your whole self. And so you're checking in with your emotions and then reflecting them. Because if you're uncomfortable with somebody, they're in their skin 24 seven, you're just with them an hour a week. So you kind of have to go, wow, must be really tough to be that person all the time. And how can I help them to find a better aspect of themselves that they would be more comfortable in 24 seven. That's a great empathetic mindset. <laughs> wow. So on, on that front, as far as like in the, in the therapist chair, you know, you're, you're a human too, right? With all these mm. complicated aspects. So one thing that's come to the fore in recent times is much more, I guess, like, airing out of racial identities and talking about race. And I've had a number of podcasts about that on the show, talking about, you know, books and pros and cons of kind of focusing on that and my, you know, thoughts and reflections as a white guy for you has, has the new conversation had to um, like change the way you approach your identity or how has, has your identity and conception of self been changed at all by the kind of new cultural dialogue? Wow, that's an interesting question. Um, as a white woman myself, I don't know that that has been a big thing. And, and I live in Arizona, Tucson, Arizona, which is extremely diverse. So I don't think that that has changed for me. I think the the identity issues for sure have been and self-esteem and and um, all of that kind of uh, has changed a lot over the years. And I think mostly it's been a realization over the years that people are very focused on the superficial and what we really need to look at are the character qualities that people have. And that we can be so harsh inside our own heads that we actually have a toxic relationship with ourselves. And so, you know, whether anybody is of any race or gender or whatever struggles they carry with them, if they appreciate who they are and they love and respect who they are, then they can walk through the world in a really healthy way. Whereas if we beat ourselves up, it doesn't matter if we're the prom queen. You know, the, the woman who jumped off the, the building a few months ago who was had it all, supposedly... You know, and, and so anybody can have that sense of emptiness and that sense of despair 
no matter what um, what the external stuff says. It's what happens inside of you that matters. Totally. So how did you get into the this, this space originally? What, what was your story? You know, what were the experiences you had as a young person that kind of led you to to this career? I think, you know, early on I wanted to be a doctor or a veterinarian. That was just kind of my whole mindset. And then I realized in college that I was actually a lot more interested and intrigued by how people felt about themselves, how they felt about others, and how they were in relationship. And that was what I wanted to learn about. And um, it was kind of hard because I, there wasn't anything in college that I could grab onto and in order to learn that. In fact, the, you know, I just I wasn't able to get any of that information in college, and I always felt like I was just making it up and flying blind. And and I I guess part of me just didn't. Once I figured some of it out, I wanted to know more, and then I wanted to help others so that they didn't have to all make it up and fly blind like I did. Um, I think there was even less information out there when I was in college and, and grad school, so if you didn't go to grad school, you just didn't know anything about this stuff. Mental health just wasn't really talked about that much. It's much more of an open dialogue now. And understanding relationships is much more of an open dialogue. But still, I think most people in the world are really baffled by it. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it was interesting to see after the um, most recent kind of high-profile school shooting, there was this dialogue from both sides about mental health and it became, um, including for the Republican Party, which, of course, huge generalization to say, like, any one group that big is not pro-mental health, but traditionally wouldn't be as vocal about things like mental health. I think that's a fair enough statement. Pretty much more of, like, a liberal kind of mindset. And then it was used as a, you know, no, let's not do gun control, let's do mental health funding, which is really interesting because it's like... <laughs> In this scenario, this is okay and used, but now and then it kind of so to me, I, I kind of assessed it as maybe there was some good intention, but essentially, like mental health as a buzzword is now when that situation was kind of being used as a pawn for a political game, you know, and that was kind of kind of interesting to me. Yeah, did you did you have any thoughts on that? <laughs> yeah, you know, and and sadly, this has been the conversation. For 20 years, I mean, when Columbine happened, there was all this buzz around mental health, and it it went nowhere, you know. And and so talk is cheap, and it it really has gotten no, nothing but worse. You know, Columbine was incredibly shocking, and now that kind of thing happens. I don't even know how many times a year. So the the mental health that young people are dealing with. And the issues young people are dealing with is just getting worse and worse for them. And and I think too, you know, I don't. I know most people won't necessarily agree with me, but I think that when you put together um, struggling mental health, um, like I said, superficial understanding of ourselves, and then you have kids, you know, being active 
first-person shooters many, many hours a day, many, many days a week, I think it's a setup for disaster because they have no skills to resolve conflicts. They get mad at somebody and they try and get a gun and go take them out. And it's that's really tragic. Yeah, certainly. I mean, yeah, it's like how, how can we not acknowledge the roles of first-person shooters to some degree? You know, yeah. there's a lot of other factors, but yeah, so, so you, you are kind of um, making the assertion that the proliferation of shooting and kind of like war video games is part of the, part of the problem. I think it, the addiction, the video game addiction, like I think video mm. games in, in to some amount is okay. I think it's when, it, when kids are left to their own devices and, are spending many, many hours and so addicted to video games and that's their only outlet. They're not outdoors. They're not playing, you know, going out on hikes and playing normal, healthy stuff right. that we grew up playing active. with. Yeah. <laughs> active, physical, um, involved in with other people. And, uh, you know, I, I know a lot of young people that I work with who are, their only contact with other people in terms of socialization is online gaming. And that's their kind of relationships. It's, it's very strange. That's tough. It's very strange and sad. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, I, I see what happens. I kind of stopped gaming in the high school maybe, but I do remember the first summer we moved to where I went to high school in Philadelphia. I remember one day, it was like the summer before freshman year of high school. And I, I didn't know anyone yet in my neighborhood or whatever. And I like was playing Xbox and I looked up and it had been six hours oh, in gosh. my basement <laughs> playing Xbox for six hours. And I was like, whoa, that's... Because <laughs> it's, it's, it happens. And so I, I get mm-hmm. it, you know. And then... So you also mentioned kind of conflict resolution. So for young people you know, what are the things that help build conflict, even for adults too, like how to deal with healthy conflict and, and what has, what is missing from the current setup of our society that doesn't teach those skills and as much anymore? I don't think it, you know, nobody learns any of this <laughs> anywhere except <laughs> I may it, truly, I mean, do, is it taught in schools? No, it's a taught anywhere. No, you know, yeah. and it, and it is available and this is, sort of the beauty of being able to do these kinds of things, podcasts and YouTubes. And, and, you know, I do have people chiming in from all over the world who say, Oh man, I didn't know other people went through this. This is so validating. Thank you so much for your work. And so I know that people reach out in these ways, which is great, but only as sort of a reaction to something traumatic happening. Um, every kid is not being taught how to work with other people and resolve conflict. They're, um, they're really not getting that information until maybe they have to. And it's, yeah, I think it's just really difficult for kids to navigate. And I think that too, typically kids will be having conversations through their cell phones, even if they're sitting next to each other or, you know, and that's so weird to me. Um, you know, when I've, when I've worked in, 
well, and it, it, it took yeah. off on all of us, right? So yeah. when, when texting first came about, everybody was going crazy texting and we would have, you know, I was working in this, in this workplace and, and people would have start these text fights. And so we all kind of had this agreement. If you have a back and forth two or three times, call them. You have to pick up the phone. You're not allowed to text fight. <laughs> <laughs> and so we had to make that agreement as a as a team that we once you go back and forth twice or you get animated at all, you have to pick up the phone and call that person and talk to them because it's so easy to say nasty, nasty things by text that you would never say in person. Mm. So I think it's really important that you know you have a rule for yourself that you don't have text fights. I've had these. You know, I have a young person in my office and we'll be talking about stuff and they'll be like, and then she said this and then I said that. And and I learned finally to say, wait a minute, was this real life or were you texting? Oh, no, we were texting. We never talk. Like, wait a minute, time out. (laughs) (laughs) You're not going to pick up the phone and talk to that person. You're just going to write them off and say these nasty things and be done. Well, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I think that's a really bad idea. <laughs> yeah. sounds, sounds like terrible for you and them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Actually, um, Drake has a great line in one of his songs. He's like talking about like girls coming to his house and he's like, they want to get in the Wi-Fi so they can get in their timeline to post about their friends or to show me their friends just to tell me they ain't really friends. You know, and it's just, it's a great line because it's so true. You know, it's like, we, not, not you and I necessarily, but it's really easy to um, create this world. And I've actually seen it with, um, my podcast because I got rid of my personal Instagram and I created one for the podcast to promote it and stuff. And then, you know, my close friends, I'll follow back, you know, and, not everyone, but keep it relatively small. And then I'm in the same thing. I'm like seeing things I'm getting, you know, fear of missing out or like I'm seeing people. I'm like, Oh, you know, I have all these weird feelings and I'm like, <laughs> damn it. <laughs> like this is the reason I left this shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's not, it's not great. Yeah. It's hard, you know, and and a lot of people I know have left Facebook and left Instagram and stuff, and I think it is healthy. And yet, you know, I get hooked because I have cousins in Australia, and I want to know what they're up to, and I wouldn't have any other way to do that. And so it's really neat to see them and their stuff. I have one cousin who's an artist, and her artwork is always on Facebook. It's really fun. So, you know, I think it's just, I think technology is just a tool it can be used for good or evil and we can, we can feed ourselves in healthy ways or we can really deplete ourselves in unhealthy ways. So we just have to make those choices. I like that. It's a good way to to think about it. Um, so, so it sounds like you do work with a lot of young people. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. I work with people of all ages. Oh, nice. So in this audience, there will be, kind of new parents or upcoming parent, you know, the next couple of years is going to be having kids. So based on your experience professionally, what are the, th- I don't know if, if there were like a top few 
must communicates or like how to, I know it's such a broad challenge of raising a human, but you know, what are like huh. the most important things you think for new parents to keep in mind about raising their kids to be, you know, avoiding the pitfalls of, of the modern day, if you will. It's a wonderful question. And, you know, I think that what's interesting is that we oftentimes out of care and empathy and compassion will make the mistake of not having kids be um, responsible and accountable and a part of the family in a really meaningful way. And so a lot of, um, a lot of us were raised with kind of a, a more uh, authoritarian stick and that, was harsh. And then we kind of flipped the script and started being way too permissive and everybody wins and, and nobody ever feels bad. And we don't want anyone to get frustrated or sad or upset or blah, blah, blah. And so there were a lot of people and some of that narcissism, I think came from people sort of worshiping their kids in a sense and being too permissive and not being structured at all. And so a kid actually feels empty when they don't participate. And so when a kid has a chore, they feel excited about that because that means that they matter and they're a part of the family. And when a kid is held accountable to that, then they learn to be responsible and they learn that they're competent and capable. And when kids don't have anything asked of them, they actually don't grow a sense of being able to be competent and capable. So it's oftentimes that over worshiping over indulgent parent that is really in trouble pretty quickly. And then, you know, the kid is a tantrumy kind of a self-centered kid and they wonder why. And they then want to talk to them about it instead of again, holding some structure and accountability. So I think it's hard when you're a loving, compassionate, empathic person Um, because you just want everybody to be happy all the time. But when you are too placating and people-pleasing and uh, peacekeeping with your kids, they actually can kind of turn into little monsters. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) And and really unhappy little (laughs) monsters. (laughs) You know, they they kind of are more depressed and anxious. And I think that's kind of surprising to to young parents because they think that they're going to be the perfect parents because they're loving but you have to have be loving and with structure. Yep. I've also heard of that in the realm of discipline and not having, I guess it's what you're saying, but specifically I've had someone close to me say like my parents didn't ever discipline me, which made me think they don't love me. Yeah. You know, <laughs> which is intense and something that I, I wouldn't have made that connection necessarily. So One of my viewers on my channel just wrote a big long thing about that today where she said that her parents always told her she was beautiful. They never talked to her about world events or anything important. They never pressed her about her grades. Um, So her grades were really mediocre. She never worked hard because there was no focus on that. And she never thought of herself as smart or capable or competent. And she's really struggling in her life and she feels like she has some narcissistic traits, you know? And so that really validates Mm -hmm. what we're talking about, that you have to have a a balanced perspective when you're parenting or, 
or kids can really get messed up by that. Wow. So if, if that person was my friend, you know, I would say something like, no, you are smart and capable, but <laughs> you know, obviously if it was that easy, then it would be a quick fix. So how do you, how do you approach working with someone like that? Yeah, you've got to do the deeper work. And so she probably is very smart and capable, but if you've sort of been overindulged and then you've created a situation where you're overindulging yourself and not holding yourself accountable, then you have the hard work to do. So in a sense, you're reparenting yourself. Now, whether you've been through trauma or whether you've been through overindulgence, you're becoming your own best parent. Um, so when we're, we're, um, sort of reparenting ourselves. If we've been traumatized, we have to learn to be kind and compassionate and caring towards ourselves because inside our heads, we are taking on the voice of that abuser. I'm such an idiot. I'm such a loser. I'm so unlovable. I'm unworthy. Whereas the other is so that self-indulgence is I don't want to, I'm not going to, I don't feel like it. I'm just going to hang out today. Um, you know, sort of that overindulgent voice of the parent. So we introject that parent voice. And then as an adult, we have to take that out and look at it and say, well, that's messed up. I don't want to, I don't want to keep doing that to myself. Um, and so it's, it's being able to take that out and look at it and change it. Wow. That's cool. hope you're enjoying this week's episode of the Bro Nouveau podcast as much as I enjoyed recording it and bringing it to you. Get involved in the conversation. Find me on Instagram at Bro Nouveau Pod or send me an email, thomas at bronouveau.com. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this week's episode. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review. Enjoy the rest of the show. Have you ever heard of um, internal family systems? Internal family systems. That's different. What do you mean by yeah. that? It's um, it's a modality. I, I don't think it's, I think it's practiced by both coaches and therapists. Um, okay. I had a, a gentleman on who that's the modality he uses with his clients. And I started working with him because <clears throat> I found it approachable. I really liked it. And so, Basically, the process was like, I'll bring up something that I'm troubled by and I'll be like, okay. And it's basically like an exhaustive, like, how does it make you feel? Or like, what comes up when you vocalize that and identify frustrated, disappointed, ashamed, scared, whatever. And then each one of those, we kind of, it's like separating it out and and speaking to that individually, that Hmm. one component of that one feeling as part of this wider, you know, problem, I guess. And so, yeah, it kind of, kind of sounds similar to what you're saying about like pulling it out, identifying it. And, um, it's interesting too, because, uh, Jay is, is, 
the guy's name. He he was basically saying, okay, now if you're speaking to this one like fragment of this feeling or you know this one uncomfortable part, and basically the idea is like put away any anxiety you have about identifying this or speaking to this part of yourself. Put it away somewhere safe. It's not like it's okay for right now. And like you know, go to me. It felt like go in the ring with this thing. You know, like hmm. if you if you know UFC, like step in the octagon with <laughs> <laughs> with the thing. You know, and like look at it. Um, and that was new, new to me. Um, and I'm and I, I really enjoyed it. Actually, I felt like it was kind of a cool way to identify something specific from a very big kind of abstract feeling yeah i really like that and i i like doing a similar kind of thing and i i kind of go another step further and i ask you where in your body are you feeling that because we kind of there's a book by a, a author bessel van der Kolk called the body keeps the score and so when we're traumatized and we have those experiences we kind of hold on to it in different parts of our body so a lot of people will carry that anxiety in their chest or in their throat or in their head or that sadness is often in your chest. And so when you feel that and then you can breathe into that part and release that and then speak to it, then it's not just words coming out of your head because we can, we can talk any talk. (laughs) Um, But when we actually settle into our emotions and where that is, is um, stuck in our bodies and we speak to that, then that kind of gets that emotion out. And once we get that emotion out on the table, then we can kind of look at the lies and the truths. Because when you see that those old negative traumatic messages that you introjected from a parent or a sibling or an experience can even be from, you know, a life experience of bullying or racial um, abuse, all of that kind of thing. And when you've introjected that into your life, into your head, that kind of takes on a new life. But it's those are all lies. Those are, have nothing to do with who you are as a pe- person mm-hmm. that was born as just a, a precious child, you know. And so when you can take that out and look at it and take the emotion out with it, then you can kind of start to look, sort that out. You can say, oh, that's that's all just garbage that that person said to me. If I were to meet that little child, I was just a precious child. I wasn't, you know, all kids are mischievous and make mistakes and break things. And, you know, for, <laughs> for me to get verbally beat up for that is ridiculous, you know. So you can have compassion for that self. And then you can look at what's true about you. Well, I'm a loving, caring, compassionate person. I'm really empathic. I'm a good friend. I'm a loyal friend. So you can actually start to put together an accurate sense of who you are. And those are the truths. So it's not like uh, the old Saturday Night Live skit of, I like myself, you know. (laughs) You're not not feeding me. I don't know if you're too young to remember that one, but... (laughs) Gary Smalley or something. Right. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't seen it, but I can imagine just like. Was, it's and I like, like the, me. Yeah. Well, that's like the limitation of CBT, right? Yeah, it can be. 
Yeah. And so you have to, so I, I don't like that stuff. The affirmations that are just sort of those (laughs) generic affirmations. Oh, make me puke. (laughs) But if you can take out and really do the work with somebody and look at who you really are as a person. And I like to ask if you met you, would you like you, would you respect you? And it, and when uh, when you actually walk through that process with somebody, even somebody who will start the session by saying, I have awful self-esteem. And when you walk through that whole session and then they can say, yeah, those things are true about me. Yeah, I actually would like me if I met me. I would have respect for me because I'm, you know, a really decent person and I have all these great qualities then that's real self-esteem. That's not just garbage affirmation, wrote Gary Smalley right. on Saturday Night Live. <laughs> yeah, on a, uh, on like a wooden plank with white lettering at like some, some mom's kitchen, you know, like. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Blessed, <laughs> you know. Like. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean we're just too we're too smart for that. You can't do anything inauthentic and get an authentic response. So it has to be true. So when you're doing an affirmation that's actually true that you've decided is true about you, that's really different. That's a completely different experience. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that seems to be a big a bit of a plague, you know, the, the, the lack of self-respect and self-love. And I actually like the way you put it. Cause I think self-love is unfortunately one of those kind of things that's become a bit, you know, uh, overplayed, mm-hmm. but I think self-esteem is, it hits, hits harder and also is more accurate. You know, it's, it's, it's really like that. And I had a, a my, one of my buddies on, and he was talking about how he conducts himself and he like in moments when he's upset or not being like a good, the best version of himself, he has like a mental trick where he's like, if all the people I loved and respected in the world were in a room and heard this played back, this recording of me played back right now, like in this, in this moment, like what would they think? Would they be proud of me? <laughs> would I be proud, you know, to have them hear that? And also, you know, kind of, kind of hard line, but, works, you know. <laughs> I love that. You know, that's holding yourself accountable. And and you know, a big part of who we are is what our values are, and that doesn't mean that we live our values perfectly. We're not perfect. We are deeply flawed, deeply messed up people, and we do our best to try to live our values and our character qualities, but we're not always going to hit that mark. And so holding ourselves accountable and saying, these are the things that matter to me. And these are the things I value about myself. And I want to be better at those things. I want to live my values more closely every day and every year um, so that I feel better about myself over time and not worse. But when you're coming out of a toxic relationship or if you were raised by people who are really mean and narcissistic, then you're going to have that um, that really really damaged sense of self. So coming out of that, you have a very empty sense of self and a very damaged sense of self. So you really have to rebuild from the ground up. You have to go 
all the way down to the brass tacks and ask yourself who you are and what you're about and what matters to you and how you're living your values and then working to sort of live more closely every day. Mm. I love it. That's Mm -hmm. the kind of stuff that gets me fired up. You know, that's like something of substance that is like, yeah, like we're alive. Let's give a shit about it and try (laughs) You know, to not be a garbage human. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally, right? Yeah. Um, That's what matters at the end of the day, you know? I mean, your your Facebook status is not going to, or yes. the likes and all that garbage is not going to mean anything at the end of the day. It's the relationships you create and who you are as a person. Love it. On the relationship front, um do you have any recommendations for how to approach a really volatile conversation with a partner? So let's say like there's something between, you know, me and my girlfriend and we're both upset about it or there's, you know, but we want to address it, you know, like in my relationship, we're pretty communication forward. So we'll be like, all right, what's up? Like we got beef here, you know, let's again, like let's get in the ring with it, you know? And so I try to be, even if I'm fired up, like, actively listen and like even if i don't agree like understand and try to understand but like for for you working with clients in those relationships are there any kind of guidelines you would give or you know how how to approach those really volatile conversations um to get the best you know possible outcome yeah that's a great question and i like to teach people to see their intensity on a one to ten scale And that from zero to five is where we want to camp out most of the time, most of our lives. From five to 10, you're really in fight, flight, or freeze, and you're triggering the other person into fight, flight, or freeze, and nothing good is going to come of it. You're going to be traumatizing each other, traumatizing yourself, um, and going into a fight, flight, freeze mode so that the words coming out of your mouth are not congruent with who you are as a person. So I like to have people really monitor themselves. And if you're getting past five, you might need to take a break and you might need to tell each other and it's okay to take a break. Some people say, no, you got to duke it out until it's done. No, 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 (laughs) no, 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 no. There's nothing good that happens from five to 10. People get rude and mean and nasty and loud and abusive And nothing good happens. It's just not productive. You have to get yourself past, you know, take a a breath, take a walk, um, do whatever you need to do to calm down and think it through a little bit and even pray and meditate about it so that you can get back into that empathic, compassionate ability to listen in that one to five zone. And when you can do that, then come back together and talk about it again and always come from an I feel place. So it's not you, you, you. Um, it's I feel sad or upset or, or frustrated or confused or whatever it is you're feeling. And then the other person can say what they're feeling. And then it's really important to listen because it's really hard to It's hard to hear sometimes, but if you listen carefully and actively, you'll sometimes find out that you're both feeling the same things. Like nine times out of 10, when I have a couple in my, um, in my office, which isn't an office anymore, sorry, (laughs) 
because <laughs> it's all virtual. <laughs> but uh, I still say it that way. But when I have a couple I'm working with, it's almost always that both people feel lonely. Both people feel unheard. Both people feel sad and frustrated that they're not getting um, the time they want together or or not feeling like that other person is really understanding where they're coming from. And once each person hears the other, they're almost always on the same page with stuff. And they almost always want the same things. They want more time together. They want things to go more smoothly. They want to hear each other and um, get along better. And oftentimes, like nine times out of 10 again, the underlying question is, do you really still love me? Or are you sick of me? Are you mad at me? Are you fed up with me? And so when the when you can get back into that one to five, then the both people feel more cared about and more loved. And when you listen to each other, you feel more cared about and loved. So that question gets answered. And most of the time, people can really come together and resolve things much more quickly. I love that. I absolutely love that one to five. Thank you. For sharing that, I think I'll carry that with me for the rest of my life. That's dynamite. Drop, drop in knowledge <laughs> on here. Thank you. You're That's welcome. Really cool. Have Have you ever had a couple come in and identify that like they need to break up? Have yeah, sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I went to a conference with this. Uh, with this couple who are both therapists and they used to run these conferences. I don't know if they still are really great stuff. And, um, and one part of it was the couple that's dead on arrival (laughs) and that stuck (laughs) with me (laughs) and I've had those and I've been, and what's funny is that some couples actually get better when you don't expect them to. And some couples that seem like they don't have that much to deal with, with that's terrible and they blow apart. And so it, it, you know, the determination in, in each person is much more indicative of what is possible than the actual circumstances. Like I've worked with couples whose damage that they've done to each other and to the relationship seems insurmountable to me. It just seems like dead on arrival. There's no way they're going to stay together. And yet they do. Because if two people are really determined to get past it and stay together, they can. And it's amazing to me. And then there are other couples who really the the beef between them is so minimal that I know we can fix it, but they're just not in it. You know, they don't have that determination and they just peace out or one of them pieces out and the other one is left high and dry. I feel like that's kind of related to what we started the conversation with about how we're raised, you know, and like having a sense of determination or responsibility or obligation or doing difficult things, you know, like the, there's a lot of, um, I guess we can call it like, like bro science, mental health, you know, just (laughs) like, just, just fucking do it, you know, push through it. Like, you know, don't be a quitter, like, you know, defeat the snooze button, that kind of stuff. You know, and, and I, I take, I like both. I like like actual, you know, professionals input and then also some of that stuff. Cause I th- I find it helpful, but that yeah. to me really sounds like, it sounds like more the former as far as like, are you going to commit to this and solve this? Do you really want it? Or yeah. are you just going to quit? 
it, I think at some points in life, that's just it. It's like, are you <laughs> going to quit or are you going to fucking do it? You know? Right. Right. And, and it's interesting because for me coming from a much more like, you know, empathetic, emotional, sensitive kind of guy, you know, I'm, I've, I was initially skeptical of that, but now more and more I kind of do see that there's a ton of value and just at a certain point, you just gotta, you just gotta rock up and do it, you know? Yeah. And, and when you're determined and you don't, and obviously if there's abuse, I'm going to, uh, nobody should ever be in couples therapy if there's abuse, first of all. And there's even a thing that's sort of an unwritten rule in the field where counseling a narcissist in a relationship is more likely giving them more tools to manipulate that person. So if you're doing couples counseling and your partner is abusive or a narcissist, you are probably making your situation worse instead of better. You need to go to the therapist by yourself and sort out your own stuff so that you can get stronger and more determined within yourself to take care of yourself, set boundaries if you can, see what happens when those boundaries are set. Because, you know, people will say, well, boundaries don't work with narcissists, but boundaries always work. They, the boundary either works because somebody goes, oh, wow, every time I get rude or nasty or, or abusive, they hang up, they walk away, they drive away, they leave me. So I'm getting these grown-up timeouts, and I really don't like them. <laughs> and so I'm going to stop behaving that way. <laughs> or the person escalates, and you know, I can't do this. This is this person's totally toxic, and they're going to kill me, and I can't do this anymore. So the boundary gave you the information you needed to get out. But barring, but other than that, then if it's just regular relationship stuff, nobody is really that it's in a, it's abusive or manipulative or controlling on that level. Then so much can be fixed if people are determined. I mean, I've like I said, I've even had people who had done so much damage, even with cheating, which to me that seems insurmountable, just because I wouldn't probably be able to get past that. Right, right. But but some people do, and it's remarkable, and they have a a happy long term marriage and raise their kids and and get past it. So. Nothing is insurmountable except abuse and narcissism. That can be insurmountable. Um, but if if it's just conflict, you guys can you can get past it. And it does take some of that mental toughness. I did a couple of videos about mental toughness because I was raised with a lot of it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, our parents were really like buck up and do it, and uh, and also very independence oriented. You know, I was just a 10, 11, 12-year-old, and I took two buses across town and walked a mile to go visit this horse that I bought with my um, allowance money. You know, it's just... Wow, sweet. They were just... Yeah, they just wanted us to be comfortable anywhere in the world, so they just kind of... We were free-range children. <laughs> That's exactly what I was going to say. That's what it sounds like. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And this was in Arizona or, or elsewhere? No, actually Salt Lake City, Utah. Oh, very cool. I love the Rockies. There's so many yeah, cool. mountains being out and, there and like you can see yeah. hundreds, you know, like a hundred miles away. You can see it's amazing. 
Yeah. Yeah. We lived up on the sort of the foothills and you could see out over the valley and we went skiing all the time and Ooh. yeah, we were free range. <laughs> do you ever, do you ever, um, want to live there again? No, I left there when I was 17. I went to Maine for college and then I uh, did grad school still in Maine, but through the university of Connecticut. Um, and then we got sick of the dark and the cold and moved to Tucson, Arizona, the sunniest place in the world. <laughs> and now we nice. have to escape to the mountains in the summertime because it's too too damn sunny. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a blast furnace. <laughs> yeah. that's I, I like the heat like that. <clears throat> um, like Kendall, my girlfriend, she's like, um, let's go to Maine. I'm like, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah it's nice about two months of the year <laughs> yeah. but i love the people there and had a blast living there you know and we we kayaked in the spring and we windsurfed all summer and then we skied all winter so we just made the nice. best of it but at some point you just kind of go uh, i can't do it <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah i'm like i want to swim play tennis, play rugby, just be in the sun. Yeah. I'm such a sun oriented. Like, oh, cool. yeah, seasonal affect is, is, is real. It's real. real. Yeah. <laughs> it's <Appreciate> real. It. <laughs> yeah. We came out to Tucson for a vacation when we lived in Maine and like, we were just exhausted, but couldn't sleep. We felt crappy. We were just, we thought we had something wrong with us. And after 48 hours in Tucson, we were like, woohoo, we feel great. <laughs> and it was during that trip, we decided we had to move. Oh, this is cool. too much. Yeah. I guess for you guys, it's awesome. <laughs> awesome. Well, Shannon, what a dynamite conversation. Thank you so much for yeah. sharing all of these pieces of, uh, pieces of knowledge. Um, Thanks for having me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. My pleasure. Um, where can people find your YouTube channel and all of your um, content that you're putting out? Yeah. So my main hub is um, my website, which is nofoggydays.com. <laughs> and uh, nice. that's kind of related to my book. And it, it's got the link to my book and the Therapist Talks is my YouTube channel, Therapist Talks with Shannon Petrovich. And um, therapisttalks.com will also get you to that same web page if you don't remember that. Um, my videos are on there and also um, some blog posts, some articles I've written, and also podcast information. When I do an interview like this, I attach it to my website. So all of that kind of goes there. Um, Therapist Talks on Instagram. I'm not as active on that, but... Um, but mostly on the YouTube channel. I do live streams every other weekend. It's a, a question and answer, very casual. So people can jump in and ask questions and I'll try to field that um, every other Sunday afternoon. Awesome. Well, good for you. And thank you yeah. for, you know, getting, you know, free to access information out to people. Like you said in the beginning, that's, that's huge. And for those who are seeking it to be able to find resources is, is important. So, yeah. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, it's my mission that nobody feels alone in the world and gets into that despair mode. That's just not right. Love it. I love it. <laughs> Thanks, cool. Thomas. Thank you, Shannon. Have a Take great, care. Uh, rest of your evening. Yeah. Thanks. Bye. -bye. You too. Bye.